You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. Treasury Department sanctions a Russian research institute for its role in the Triton Trisis ICS malware attacks. Coordinated inauthenticity with a commercial as well as a political purpose, the Clean Network project gains ground in Central and Eastern Europe. Robert M. Lee from Dragos shares insights on the recent DOJ indictments of Russians allegedly responsible for the Sandworm campaign. Rick Howard explores SD-WANs. And data breaches afflict a large Finnish psychiatric institute. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, October 26, 2020. On Friday, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control announced sanctions against the State Research Center of the Russian Federation's Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemistry and Mechanics for, quote, knowingly engaging in significant activities undermining cybersecurity against any person, including a democratic institution or government on behalf of the government of the Russian Federation, end quote. Specifically, this comes down to the Institute's role in developing the Trisis Triton malware. Trisis Triton was designed to disable industrial safety systems, obviously a dangerous and unusually aggressive design, one more suited to the production of hazardous kinetic effects than to the simple compromise of IT systems. It was used against a Saudi petrochemical plant in 2017, but misfired. Had it functioned as intended, its effects could have been potentially lethal. As Treasury explained the incident, quote, the Triton malware was designed to target a specific industrial control system controller used in some critical infrastructure facilities to initiate immediate shutdown procedures in the event of an emergency. The malware was initially deployed through phishing that targeted the petrochemical facility. Once the malware gained a foothold, its operators attempted to manipulate the facility's ICS controllers. During the attack, the facility automatically shut down after several of the ICS controllers entered into a failed safe state, preventing the malware's full functionality from being deployed and prompting an investigation that ultimately led to the discovery of the malware. Researchers who investigated the cyber attack and the malware 
reported that Triton was designed to give the attackers complete control of infected systems and had the capability to cause significant physical damage and loss of life. In 2019, the attackers behind the Triton malware were also reported to be scanning and probing at least 20 electric utilities in the United States for vulnerabilities. End quote. The Treasury Department's sanctions are noteworthy in that they're being directed against a nominally disinterested scientific research organization. The authority for the sanctions is Section 224 of the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, known as CATSA. The specific measures resemble those taken against other organizations the Office of Foreign Assets Control has placed on the specially designated nationals list. Quote, all property and interests in property of the Institute that are in or come within the possession of U.S. persons are blocked, and U.S. persons are generally prohibited from engaging in transactions with them. Additionally, any entities 50% or more owned by one or more designated persons are also blocked. Moreover, non-U.S. persons who engage in certain transactions with the Institute may themselves be exposed to sanctions. End quote. Not all coordinated and authenticity is state-sponsored or even directed toward primarily political ends. Late Friday, Graphica described inauthentic networks based in Myanmar that Facebook took down on October 21st. Graphica says they contain a mix of clickbait, much of it involving celebrity news and gossip, and political content, much of it pro-army and anti-Muslim. The clickbait apparently predominated. The motivation for the operation, Graphica concluded, was more commercial than political. ZDNet reports that four more European governments have signed on to the U.S.-led Clean Networks program, Slovakia, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, and Kosovo. They join the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Serbia, Slovenia, Albania, Greece, Poland, Ukraine, Romania, and the Czech Republic— in agreeing in principle on the threat Chinese companies, like Huawei, but not only Huawei, potentially pose to 5G security. Much of Europe and North America, whether they've signed on to clean networks or not, now have expressed official skepticism about the wisdom of allowing Chinese hardware into their 5G infrastructure. The U.S. is currently in talks with both Brazil and India about 5G security. Finnish psychotherapy center Vastamo has sustained a data breach with loss of patient information, and individual patients have begun receiving extortion demands asking for three to 500 euros to keep their clinical details quiet. The story first began to appear in tabloids last Wednesday as victims complained of the extortion notes they'd begun receiving. Details remained sparse, and Vastamo seems to have been slow to recognize that it had been breached. A press release from the company yesterday said that it believes it sustained two separate attacks, one in November of 2018 and another between December 2018 and March of 2019. Information belonging to some 300 patients is believed to have been published online. Computing reports that overall some 40,000 patients' data were compromised. Thousands of victims have already filed criminal reports. The incident has received attention at the highest levels of Finland's government, President Sally Ninisto called the attacks especially cruel insofar as they constituted an assault on the victims' inner selves. National authorities are investigating and have said they're determined to bring the criminals responsible to justice. 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer, Rick Howard. Rick, great to talk to you again. Thank you, sir. Uh, on this week's CSO Perspectives, you are talking about SD-WAN. And uh, I have a, an admission to make that before we <laughs> we're going to meet here today, I am not really up to speed on exactly what an SD-WAN is and how it could be important for security. So before we dig in here, why don't you just take a minute and bring me up to speed? Well, let me uh, tell you, you're not alone, my friend. There's a lot of people <laughs> in the same boat. And so was I, okay, when I started working on this episode. And by the way, as many of our hash table experts were too. So don't feel bad. Mm, okay. <laughs> All right, so here's what I learned. The first thing you have to know is that the way we are building our internal enterprise networks is going through a revolution. You may not even known that. The old way, starting, say, in the early 2000s, was that we needed to connect our data centers that we managed and our other remote sites together. And we did that by installing expensive but fast and reliable MPLS circuits between the sites that we leased from the telecommunications companies. And, okay. you know, by the way, I know you're reaching for the Google machine um, to look up what MPLS stands for. Let me just stop you there. It is multi-protocol label switching all right, so put that yeah. in your nerd basket. <laughs> I was just gonna—I was gonna guess that actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a—it's just a dedicated, uh, for the time, high-speed connection between the mothership and all the the remote offices. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, dedicated yep. hardware, dedicated software to establish those connections. Okay. And and for security, we would backhaul the traffic destined for the internet to a data center that housed the security stack. So internet inbound and outbound traffic had to go through the security stack, and that's how we protected our environments. Hmm. So fast forward to today, enterprises of all sizes, as you know, 
are moving their workloads out of their data centers and into the cloud somewhere, either through mm. SaaS services or IAS and PAS services from big providers like Microsoft, Google, or Amazon. Because of that, it is making less and less sense to maintain these expensive internal MPLS circuits when mostly what we each site needs is an internet connection to the local cloud provider. Now, you do that through cheap and less reliable broadband connections. And in the very near future, I mean, you know, a couple years probably, you might be doing this through 5G connections. Hmm. But remember when I said these connections were unreliable? Yeah. Well, the way we compensate for that is to install not one broadband connection, but many at each site, depending on how big your organization is. So uh, remember belt that. Belt and suspenders. Say that again? Belt and suspenders. Belt and suspenders. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so you got to remember that broadband connections are way cheaper compared to MPLS circuits, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah. All that is great, but now the complexity for managing all those internet connections in terms of data flow priority and choosing the fastest internet connection, not to mention ensuring that all that traffic goes through a security stack somewhere, has exponentially grown. Hmm. This is where SD-WAN comes in. It is a software networking abstraction layer that manages all those connections. So to help me explain this, I was talking to Paul Calitude. He came to the hash table this week to talk about it. He is the Palo Alto Network's chief security officer for the Americas, and he came up with a fantastic analogy to describe what is going on here. Resilience it essentially makes up for the lack of, of dedication and, and lack of reliability, because now I have many, many unre unreliable options to get back home. And eventually some of those paths, it's like ways, right? Like the maps, you know, all of a sudden it's telling you to go a different path, but ultimately it's looking and going, yeah, we'll get you there eventually, right? Like on time. And uh, you're going in back neighborhoods and going through dirt trails and you're like, well, this is efficient. But that's kind of the way SD-WAN works. Like the big visualization here is SD-WAN is the ways for networking. <laughs> All right. Well, so I, I I get it now. I mean, it's we we're talking, this is basically as if we had... For our WAN, we had uh, a version of Waze to just make it all, right, to make it easy, uh, it, just in one place, right? It's uh, guiding us, guiding us from point A to point B a way we didn't even know that existed. That's exactly the way it is. And I took this quote from the Google website because it will help, all right? It says, Here's, here it is, quote, Knowing what's happening on the road with Waze, even if you know the way, Waze tells you about traffic, construction, crashes, and more in real time. If traffic is bad on your route, Waze will change it to save you time, end quote. That is exactly what SD-WAN does for you on your network. You know, I, it's funny. I, I've, I've come to believe that um, you uh, don't believe Waze at your own peril, right? Because <laughs> time and time again, I, Waze has been telling me to go somewhere or any of these GPS, you know, smart GPS apps. And, they're, and I'm going, this isn't right. This isn't right. This can't be right. I've never gone this way before. This is a completely, and then all of a sudden, bam, I'm there. I'm at my destination. I'm like, what? wait a minute. How did yeah. that happen? I didn't even know that that connection was possible. Well, and, you, and so, you look at what those guys do. They said, they're not going to get you where the best Way, but they're going to get you there a way, all right? So uh, yeah. and that's, that's kind of what SD-WAN is, because you're going to have this myriad of connections of ways to get to the internet and back and forth through your own enterprise. It's going to find the way to get your packets to where they need to go. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a lot more to learn about this, and I know you all will dig deep into it. It's uh, CSO Perspectives. It's over on CyberWire Pro. Do check it out. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's always great to have you back. Um, we just had the you know the recent news that uh, half a dozen Russian military officers were charged in a hacking campaign. This is the the Sandworm campaign, uh, the Justice Department going after them. I wanted to check in with you. What is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought this was a really good and strong move, especially ahead of the election. I think the Department of Justice and FBI as a whole have a bit of a credibility problem walking into election cybersecurity discussions, right or wrong. And coming out ahead of the election with a really detailed indictment um, with some really significant access. I mean, this was, there's components of this that definitely came from either allied intelligence or NSA and CIA um, supporting these when you're actually getting into um, individual operator names and, and really, you know, core details of what they were doing on the adversary side, not just on the victim side. Um, so by and large, real strong messaging. Um, I think the the message is pretty clear on, you know, we're willing to burn our resources to burn your resources. And that's a really significant thing for um, any government to say to an adversary state. The the, the two kind of critiques that I had, and, and so I, I don't want this to get taken out of context that, I, that I'm critiquing the report as a whole. Again, overall, well done to the folks that put this together. Um, the, the two critiques, and, and I'd say one may be a hilarious thing. Um, number one on the, on the critique I, I do think the 2015-2016 Ukraine attacks deserved a standalone um, sort of admonishment. Um, I've been pretty critical of that when they happened as well, that we did not have any Western leaders come out and even condemn the attacks. Forget forget the attribution, forget any aspect of that. Um, but even coming out and saying, look, uh, a cyber attack that caused electric power outages on civilian infrastructure is exactly what we said for years we don't want to see. Let's set the precedent that we're going to come out and condemn this. And I've I've been fairly critical over the years that we never saw that, and I think that was a mistake. Um, and so it's good to see it in the report as part of the the you know history of this threat, if you will. Um, but seeing it called out by the DOJ and see it called out, you know, five years later, I would have liked to have seen a, a larger state sooner kind of effort. Um, the other critique I have, and I'll, I'll have this critique forever, which. I fully understand its place in the strategy. I fully understand the the opposing viewpoints here. Uh, I, I'm not saying they're not without value, um, but I just generally do not like the name and shame strategy of individuals, especially when they're in the military. I mean, two mm-hmm. of those individuals in the one and wild, wild west poster styled, you know, uh, appendix they had um, were in military uniform even um, in the pictures. And I just think it sets an extraordinarily bad precedent. Um, that we are going to not only name and shame, but do indictments and hold accountable the individuals more than the state themselves. Those individuals now have restrictions on them and have been publicly called out in ways that we'll never be able to go back um, um, to normal life. 
And yet we don't see a lot of sanctions or, or actions against the, the GRU or the Russian state themselves. And I think as the United States, where we have a really active cyber command, a really active um, national security agency, it is a mistake to put the focus on military and, and individuals. Um, and I really, really abhor the day that we're going to see U.S. enlisted members or similar on Wild Wild West posters in Russia or China or Iran. Why do you suppose they're coming at it this way? What, what do you suppose the the intelligence community seizes the, the advantage of, of naming and shaming that way? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, so the, the opposing views I've heard before, one, one which is an opposing view, it's just the reality, is in the, you know, the DOJ's lane, um, specifically is criminal indictments. Um, and to do that, you, you've got to name people. So if you're going to invoke the strategy of using the Department of Justice against these cyber threats, um, the, the naming of individual victims and the naming of individual adversaries makes a lot of sense in an indictment. Um, so I don't think this is a critique on the DOJ. I think from a U.S. government strategy, they have used the DOJ multiple times now in this way. And I would advise elevating the discussion beyond the DOJ um, to be more about the states themselves and not the actor. As it relates to uh, the counterpoints I've heard, you know, one of them very clearly, yeah, I think a number of people think, oh, well, they're not going to get arrested. This doesn't matter. Well, it is actually really impactful. Um, those, those indictments also carry over to allied states and states that honor sort of the indictments themselves and, and making it difficult for those individuals to travel, makes it difficult for them to go on holiday, uh, could be implications for their financials uh, and bank accounts and similar. So the naming and shaming aspect does have impact to those individuals. And again, the counterpoints I've heard before are it does actually deter potentially um, the individuals from from ever taking um, those actions in the first place. I don't really buy that. Having and, and obviously I'm very biased here, but having been in the U.S. military and served in the National Security Agency, if my commander were to tell me to go do a mission um, you know, supported by the president or whatever else, and there was a fear of retribution or um, being named and shamed by a foreign state, that probably would have emboldened me, not deterred me. It was this aspect of, ah, well, I'm I'm here to serve the cause. You know, if, if something goes wrong, that, you know, consequences be damned, um, you mm. know, support the Constitution of the United States. And, and so I, I don't want to mirror image the adversary too much here, but I do question uh, that the deterrence on individuals is real or impactful. Um, and and more moreover, I do think the broader United States strategy against cyber threats has to take into consideration stronger positions of condemnation, norm setting, uh, sanctions, um, economic sort of tools that we have, diplomatic tools that we have. And, and it seems that the DOJ is doing a really good job, but it's kind of you know one one stool of the strat or one leg of the strategy, and I, I think there's a couple other pieces missing right now. Hmm. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. Save you time and keep you informed. It's good to the last drop. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Hop. I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Baru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Dina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.